During my stay on the farm in Oakford, the BBC News broadcasts were mainly devoted to the air war. The RAF and the Luftwaffe were, both, heavily engaged. The air, for a while, became the primary battleground and both bombers and fighters were being used, in large numbers, by each combatant. Intended as a prelude to the intended invasion, the Luftwaffe sent large formations of bombers, to attack and destroy strategic targets in the British Isles. At this stage of the war, these German bomber formations were always accompanied, and protected, by squadrons of fighters. These Luftwaffe tactics kept the RAF fighters fully occupied. Meantime, largely unattended by fighters which were engaged defending Britain, RAF bombers were continuing to attack targets in Germany and the occupied countries. Although, later, RAF bomber command would grow to a prodigious size, in the early part of the war it had far fewer aircraft than the Luftwaffe. Nonetheless, bomber command carried out a busy schedule. Among the most important targets for the RAF bombers, at this stage of the war, were the invasion barges, then being assembled in the coastal ports of the occupied countries. These barges, and other craft intended for use in the intended German invasion of Britain, were attacked regularly. Reconnaissance photographs, of the damage inflicted upon these various vessels, would then be reproduced and printed in the newspapers. These photographs appeared quite frequently and I can recall how closely everybody studied them, as we sought to have confirmation of our hopes. Morale was helped, however, by these photographs and the reports of damage, even though, to the inexpert eye, little could be made of the indistinct pictures we were looking at. Almost overlooked, in our minds, was the news that Italian forces had attacked, and heavy fighting was taking place, in British Somaliland. The unpleasant outcome, of this opportunistic Italian attack on an outpost of British colonialism, was that Britain had to admit defeat and withdraw, yet again. Few of us, however, could appreciate that this news had any real significance or importance. Selfishly, maybe, our minds were focused on the threat of an imminent invasion. We didn't have the time, to worry about things that were happening on the far side of Africa. Before long, North Africa would be the center of our interest, but not in July, August, September, October and November of 1940. Even as a youngster, I could sense the mood had become morbidly apprehensive, in Britain. We had suffered too many defeats, quick defeats, which had dented our national pride. The point had been reached, where our flagging spirits could be bolstered, only, by concentrating on the small scraps of news that weren't definitively bad. What we needed and what we were awaiting, desperately, was some sort of tangible victory and we were hoping the RAF would provide this. The ongoing battle, between the RAF fighters and the German Luftwaffe, seemed a likely source of good news. The public sensed, that this air war was far from being a one-sided affair. Too many incidents, before this, had been. Now, even taking the most pessimistic view, we seemed to be holding our own, in something. We feasted upon the daily reports, of enemy aircraft shot down, and tended to focus our minds on this one aspect of the war. By concentrating on the good news, our melancholy mood could be lessened. I think some people tended to emulate the allegorical ostrich, by burying their heads and closing their minds, as best they could, to all adverse events and happenings. In spite of this great reluctance, on the part of some people to face the facts, the truth was plain for us all to see. Britain, still, was in deep trouble during the latter half of 1940. I have mentioned RAF Bomber Command's frequent attacks, on the mass craft being assembled all along the Channel Coast. In the bright light of history, the importance of these raids and the feelings of people in Britain could be dismissed, as unimportant and irrelevant, very easily. For any sense, or understanding, of the times to be appreciated, it has to be realized that the expected invasion, of our shores, was a very real and constant threat. Later intelligence tended to show that such an invasion operation, 
with the means and methods then available to the Germans, would likely have failed. This, however, wasn't the contemporaneous assessment of the situation. The German military machine was held, rightly, in awe. The Wehrmacht had beaten, and beaten decisively, every opponent they had, thus far, met. Nothing, had stood in their way. It wasn't, entirely, what they had done. Rather it was, the way they had done it. It was true, Churchill had recently become Prime Minister. His speeches had begun to imbue us with spirit but, in the absence of any tangible success, we were still not a very confident nation. There was a horrible, helpless feeling, among the population of Britain, that we were unable to shake off. At the root, of all this deep national depression, was the underlying fear that the Germans would invade. The fearful consequences, of such an invasion, were unthinkable. Yet, it was virtually certain to happen, at any moment. The success, or failure, of such an undertaking could be argued. That it would happen, however, was thought indisputable. It occupied our minds, greatly, and proved rather unnerving. I think everyone wondered how they would react, in the event the Germans landed. I know I found this, a very sobering thought. From July 1940 onwards, the Luftwaffe was increasingly active over Britain. Very heavy raids were made, almost daily, against airfields, radar stations and transport facilities. We civilians heard the news reports, but as only bare details were given, most of us couldn't appreciate the full significance of what was happening. In particular we didn't know because, naturally, it wasn't reported, that these raids were slowly crippling RAF fighter command and reducing the effectiveness of many fighter airfields. Constant bombardment, by the enemy, meant that fully operational airfields were becoming scarce. Some, most worryingly, were barely functioning. The Luftwaffe attacks came with a price. The Germans were losing planes, and in fairly large numbers, but the losses incurred by the RAF were also mounting. We tried to gain solace, in the fact that the loss ratio appeared to favor the RAF by 2 to 1. In all the fighting that was going on, in the skies above us, one particularly heartening aspect became known. That was, the regular reports of RAF pilots, who had survived being shot down, being picked up by friendly forces and returned to their squadrons. We heard of a few cases where pilots, who were picked up in the morning, were back in the air that afternoon, in fact, special air-sea rescue craft were assigned this task and were responsible for the recovery of many of the downed airmen. While friend and foe, alike, were rescued, the RAF pilots were often able to fight again, while the Luftwaffe pilots were made prisoners of war. The fact that RAF pilots were rescued, was of more importance than we realized. We were later to find out, that the country was not critically short of aircraft, although this doesn't mean there was a surplus. No, the critical shortage was in train pilots. I remember, very clearly, my own feelings, which mirrored those of most other people, when we began to receive the daily tallies of the enemy planes shot down. The newspapers, of course, blazoned the Luftwaffe figures in bold print as headlines occasionally, these headlines were enormous. While the BBC news readers didn't allow their feelings to show in their voice, they, too, reported the news and, invariably, placed it in a position of importance in their news broadcasts. These daily tallies were reported, very much in the manner football, or cricket, scores might have been. Indeed everyone looked at, and listened to, these figures, in that kind of light. The RAF losses were always given but, of course, with much more reserve and circumspection. Although it might appear almost irreverent, these figures did much to help maintain an optimistic outlook, among the public as a whole. It probably sounds highly inappropriate, in today's politically correct society, but people cheered when some results were announced. There were a few occasions, when the figures seemed particularly favorable. One such occasion was, 
when it was reported that 185 German planes had been shot down for the loss of only 25 RAF planes, with 14 RAF pilots saved. People were jubilant. No doubt, some of this excessive jubilation was the result of pent-up frustration, fear and stress. Nevertheless, it felt really good, to have something positive to cheer about. I suspect that today, people would cluck and tut at such an unfeeling attitude. While I am merely reporting what happened, I do know it felt good. Later, we learned, the Luftwaffe losses were not as great as was reported. These losses were not outrageously far from the truth, but they were certainly inflated, for one reason or another. By then, the war was over. We didn't care. There were two great battles going on in the late summer and early autumn of 1940. Both these battles were of vital importance. Each had to be won, or Britain would be destined for defeat. One of these battles was ponderous and, often, phlegmatic. This battle had been going on, since the first day of the war, and would continue until, almost, the end of it. This was the Battle of the Atlantic. The other battle rose up like a comet, of incredible incandescence, which burned brightly, for a while, before falling out of sight below the skyline. This was the Battle of Britain. The ceaseless battle in the Atlantic, to bring in supplies, was a long-drawn-out, glamourless, affair. The loss of British ships, compared to the occasional success over the German U-boats, was most depressing. Maybe, because the details of it were so discouraging, this perpetual sea battle went largely unreported. Probably, because of our traditional and unqualified faith in our navy, we barely thought about it. Horrendous as the situation was, I think everyone firmly believed that the seamen, of the Royal and Mercantile Navies, would see us through. It can't be overstressed that, at this time in 1940, there was an almost total absence of good news from the Atlantic, and much of the bad news couldn't be released. It must have been terribly rough on those involved to be, apparently, ignored, during this period. So, too, must it have been for those with loved ones engaged in this vital battle. That this happened, is regrettable. Clearly, it wasn't a deliberate attempt to downplay the sea battles and boost the air war. It was, I think, merely that the air war was happening on our doorstep dash maybe, even, inside our house. The results of the many air battles, as I have said, came in on a daily basis. Invariably, these results were favorable. This tended to keep the air war front and center. They also encouraged the exclusion of other, and far less appetizing, news. Morale was a very important thing to foster. The public's morale was low, it had to be raised by any means possible. The two-to-one ratio of success, in favor of the RAF fighters, was just such a daily fill-up to our morale. Nevertheless, this preoccupation with the air war, while completely understandable, was short-sighted. Both, sea and air, battles were of crucial importance, although the sea battle would prove the more decisive. However, it can't be denied that, it was also essential for Britain to win the air war. We civilians could, perhaps, be excused, for failing to understand and appreciate any tactical, strategic or operational considerations, in all this. We just knew that success in the air might, possibly, prevent the Germans from bombing our homes to smithereens. Mainly, I suppose, because of unending propaganda to boost our morale, we came to be obsessed with the daily news regarding the air battle. Whether it was of paramount importance, or not, it can't be denied it was exciting and gripping stuff. Although, perhaps, the comparison is odious, maybe tactless, not since the Christians v. Lions contests, in the Roman Forum, had such an event been staged. Since those times how often has it happened, that the public had a grandstand seat, from which to watch a true life or death battle, without being actually involved. Between July and September 1940, huge sections of the population, often wholly remote from any real danger, watched the skies as planes battled overhead.
sometimes clouds prevented much, of what was happening, from being seen. On a clear day, however, the action was seen by an audience of many hundreds of thousands. Because of the many buildings, London was not a good place from which to see any action. The outer suburbs and the surrounding countryside were good places to view the day's events. Best of all, though, was the rolling countryside of the North Downs. For many weeks, the action occurred almost daily. Frequently, an aircraft would fall, with smoke trailing behind it, until it crashed. If it fell into the sea, a huge water spout, usually, would erupt. If it crashed on land, often a huge fireball would envelop the wreckage. Some planes exploded and disintegrated far above, leaving nothing but widely spread debris on the ground. At other times, a plane would be heard with a malfunctioning engine. Occasionally, one of these planes would limp past at a low altitude, as the pilot strove to keep plane flying. On these occasions, it was often possible to distinguish the pilot, clearly, as he struggled with the controls. Sometimes a parachute would be seen, but only rarely was it clear whether it was a friend, or a foe, who was surviving. I think it fair to say that, at that stage of the war, varying depths of compassion was felt by most of us, for all the combatants, although this wouldn't last, as far as German air crews went. The wholesale bombing, of ordinary citizens, changed most people's attitude, particularly, the attitude of those bombed. This wanton bombing eroded the last vestige of the magnanimity, many people had felt earlier in the war, for members of the Luftwaffe. This magnanimity had emanated, I'm certain, from the many World War I tales of Arthurian gallantry among the early flyers dash from many countries. The public showed enormous interest, in the proceedings. No stock or bond price was monitored, more closely. No sporting event was followed, more fanatically. Every one of us, seized upon each and every detail that we could. Realizing it was a measure of success, or failure, our emotions sank, or swam, with the daily comparative loss totals. We became preoccupied, with what was happening in the skies above Britain. Few of us were close to understanding, any of the tactics or strategies involved. How could we? No such battle had ever been fought, before. The actual battles were similar, in so many ways to a good theatrical performance, there were good guys and bad guys, there was drama, there was action and, sadly, death and destruction. The strangely terrible thing was, that it was also antiseptic and impersonal. It was, sometimes, difficult to comprehend that what was happening wasn't the theater, but the real thing. It would be much later in the war, when the country's fortunes had definitely changed for the better, before any similar intense and passionate interest would be paid, again, to any specific field of military endeavor. Then, it would be the advance of Montgomery's 8th Army, from El Alamein, late in 1942. We know, now, that many of the figures of enemy losses were incorrect. Careful post-war study of the records, has shown both exaggeration and optimism. This, likely, arose from the customary method of debriefing. Debriefing, consisted, and still consists, I believe, of questioning the crew of a warplane immediately after a sortie. In this manner, information could be learned, as to what had happened during the sortie. With the fighter pilots, this was often hurried at this juncture of the war. The men had to eat, sleep, or rest as much as possible, between frequent sorties. This left little time, for questions. The need for speed, although understandable, didn't aid accuracy. Neither did the fact that a clear and precise memory is unlikely, so soon in the aftermath of any intense combat. At the time and in the case of fighter planes, particularly, pilots could be debriefed within a very few minutes of a highly stressful encounter with the enemy. There was seldom time, or opportunity, for pilots to collect their thoughts. The maelstrom of emotions experienced during a hectic life and death battle, must have made, most difficult, the calm recollection of events. 
adrenaline would have been flowing rapidly, through a pilot system. In the prevailing circumstances of an aerial dogfight, two, or, even, more, pilots could claim an enemy plane shot down. This claim could be made, genuinely, with the claimant being completely unaware of any other person's contribution. Efforts were made to corroborate claims but, in the days before cameras were standard equipment, determining the truth was not easy. Accurate figures of enemy losses are essential, for any battle commander. Commanders need to know the relative strength of their own, and the enemy's, force. And accurate figures can cause decisions, to be made, which later proved disastrous. As a perfect example, Luftwaffe pilots' inflated figures prompted their commanders to err, seriously. The number of fighters, sent to protect the formations of bombers, was drastically reduced. This resulted in confusion and disillusionment one day, when Luftwaffe formations found themselves actually faced by more RAF fighters than the Germans believed existed at the time. The fact, that the Luftwaffe suffered a humiliating defeat, can be attributed directly to an inaccurate assessment of the opposition. So bad was the German assessment, of the RAF fighter strength, the squadrons they faced, that day, were not close to being the total fighter force. Fighters were still available, to defend against an attack on any part of Britain. The RAF defensive policy laid out various sections of Britain. Each, individual, section was defended, by a force of fighters thought adequate for the purpose. In this way, no matter where, or in how many places, the Luftwaffe attacked, at any particular time, the raiders would be confronted, by defending fighter planes. The Germans never did grasp this point and, in this, their intelligence service, apparently, let them down. At the beginning of their assault upon the British Isles, preparatory to their intended invasion, the Germans appeared to concentrate, chiefly, on bombing coastal towns, shipping in the Channel, radar stations and airfields. From July 1940, onwards, these raids took place. The attacks were all heavy and concentrated, particularly on the airfields in the southeast of the country. All of these airfields were in the front line, of the battle that was raging at the time. Luftwaffe planes pounded these airfields, relentlessly. Radar stations were also attacked, but not as ruthlessly as the airfields. The reason for this, it was later discovered, was because the Germans didn't fully understand the full function of this British invention dash at that time. In particular, the Germans were unaware of the reliance Britain was placing on this technology, in the control of RAF Fighter Command. This important aspect will be enlarged upon, later. During early August 1940, the BBC reported air raids on various town and cities, in addition to raids on airfields. Some appeared obvious targets, while others must have caused some eyebrows to be raised in questioning surprise. These included Portsmouth, Three Times, Ventnor on the Isle of Wight, Hastings, Southampton, Liverpool, Four Times, and Luton. This is in addition to the two raids, on Portland and Weymouth, I have already mentioned as happening while I was on the farm. Although London had many alerts, the city had very little in the way of bombing. Some of the outer areas were bombed but, until late in August 1940, the centre remained unscathed. A couple of bomber command raids, deserve special mention. RAF bombers made headlines, and heartened us all mightily, in the middle of August. Two important raids were made, in Italy. One was an attack on the Fiat Works, in Turin, and the other was on an industrial target in Milan. With the aircraft then available, bombing trips of such distance were extremely hazardous and very taxing. However, even this daring feat was, shortly, to be overshadowed by the first RAF air raid on Berlin. This occurred, on August 25, 1940. All these attacks improved our morale, enormously, and were the subject of much discussion. I can clearly remember celebrating the Berlin raid, 
which was later to have important repercussions, as it came immediately after a German raid on London. The German leaders, especially Goering, had proclaimed Berlin would never be bombed by the RAF. The raid on August 25 embarrassed Hitler, who ordered retaliation on London. This tit-for-tat attitude contributed, greatly, to the Luftwaffe's later change of direction. This, in turn, resulted in the welcome reprieve, from bombing, enjoyed by the RAF airfields. London suffered, but the airfields were spared and, along with them, RAF Fighter Command. It is not an exaggeration to say that, with the survival of Fighter Command, the invasion of Britain was a non-starter. That London suffered, as a result, was a small price to pay for being free of the terrible dread and fear of an invasion. As I have related, for two weeks in July and for the first three weeks in August, I was enjoying myself in Oakford. We seldom heard aircraft, of any sort. There was nothing at Child Oakford, to make it a likely target. Neither was it, apparently, in the path of any particular target. Of course, the air raids on Weymouth and Portland had caused quite a stir. Although neither of these two places was particularly close, people talked of little else, for days on end. I returned to London, in the middle of the week of August 18th to 24th, to spend the last couple of weeks of my holiday with my mother and Gran. School, in England, always started in the second week of September. Traveling midweek, it was possible to avoid the regular, horrendous weekend crushes experienced on all public transport. These crowded conditions occurred throughout the war but, particularly, on the railways, and, at that time. While I had been on the farm, Luftwaffe activity had increased greatly around London. London had a number of alerts, but little had transpired anywhere close to Hammersmith. There was no reason to suppose, this state of affairs wouldn't continue. The raid on the capital, during the night of August 24th, was not a particularly heavy one. Neither were a large number of bombs dropped, on the city, however, it was the first time I had experienced such a thing. The sirens, alone, were bad enough. I'd never heard so many sirens, at once. They made, a terrible racket. The situation seemed worse, because it was happening at nighttime. I was a frightened fellow, as I sheltered in Gran's hallway in the stairwell. Gran, Mom and I were there, together with some of the lodgers. Other lodgers, in particular a great friend of the family, Mr. Hindmarsh, remained in their beds. I wondered then, as I wondered on many more occasions before the end of hostilities, how Mr. Hindmarsh could do it. He never sheltered with us. He remained, stoically, in his bed through this and the rest of the many night raids, of all sorts. Although it was not a widely adopted policy, others did the same. Not me. On the few occasions I was called upon to decide my own action, I chose to shelter. And, might I add, shelter to the very best of my ability under the circumstances. Had the Anderson shelter been fit to enter, that night our small group would likely have been in it. The shelter was, however, underwater and completely uninhabitable. So, putting a brave face on, which fooled nobody I'm certain, I endured my first real air raid. Anyone visiting London, in the early years of the war, couldn't fail to notice the number of barrage balloons flying above the city. There was a detachment of soldiers based on Wormwood Scrubs, an open space not far from my home. These troops had caused quite a stir, among the local community, when they first arrived. We youngsters often congregated to watch, as the soldiers operated one of these balloons. The balloon, itself, was not a weapon, but was used to suspend heavy steel wires from the ground. This wire was a strong deterrent, to enemy planes, against flying at a low altitude. In addition dive bombing, a favorite German method and one that had proved so successful in Poland, and elsewhere, was effectively prevented by these stout wires. The balloons were moored to large winches on the ground and were useful, to a degree. 
They were extremely difficult to manage in the usual windy conditions of Britain, and it was not possible to have them at a height that would have made accurate bombing really difficult. Neither, in the slightest, did they prevent indiscriminate bombing of town and cities. Additionally, both friend and foe had to be aware of them. In fact, although quite easy to destroy, only a few of these balloons were attacked. This probably shows, as much as anything, the total lack of importance the Luftwaffe placed upon these bulbous, bulky, bulwarks. Probably the greatest worth, of these balloons, was in helping to improve our morale. Seeing them, flying high in the sky, people believed effective measures had been taken. This, at least, was a plus. It was probably about this time that I also noticed something else. Although it never became a common sight, a number of vehicles started to be seen with huge, ungainly gas bags attached to their roofs. We learned that these bags contained hydrogen and that the vehicles were powered by this fuel. I have never been very mechanical. I didn't understand then, any more than I do now, exactly how this worked, but, work it did. There must have been some fundamental flaw in the system they used, because the gas-powered vehicles seemed to disappear, entirely, from the streets. From early June 1940, the Battle of Britain had been raging. The eventful happenings have been described. In August, as I returned to London, this battle was still in progress. The skies, around London, were full of aircraft. Some, of these planes, ended as wreckage upon the ground. Most were destroyed, but a few of them remained, virtually, intact. Naturally enough, any of those belonging to the RAF were carted off, to be repaired and flown again, if possible. If not, at least they were cannibalized. Suitable German aircraft, on the other hand, were often, put on public display. Later on, when the German planes had been forced out of the skies, the practice stopped. In their place, however, Britain had enough bombers to spare to put these on display, along with their 10-ton bombs. The main object, in all of this, was to encourage war savings. Saving stamps, in denominations of 60 and, I think, 2-60, were always on sale at these showings dash as well as elsewhere. We lads were always to the fore at these events. Long queues, inevitably, formed, but we didn't mind. Many of these exhibited planes had wooden platforms which enabled viewers to see inside the cockpit. It was, in truth, quite exciting. Being schoolboys, we felt duty-bound to obtain a souvenir of any German aircraft. War memorabilia were collected, avidly, by many schoolboys. As surreptitiously as possible, we would try to detach a small part from the aircraft. One thing slightly puzzles me to this day, however. We never did understand the fervent lengths that officials took to prevent this happening. The plane, after all, was a wreck. The ownership, of the plane, could be said to be questionable and the plane would be scrapped, as soon as it had finished being displayed. Why was it, we wondered, they tried to take such great care of it? It was all one huge game for us, of course. We attempted to obtain our souvenirs, they attempted to stop us. I should think that honor was about even, in the final analysis. War is a strange experience. In September, the Luftwaffe changed their tactics. Although the attacks on airfields continued for a while, sometimes with great ferocity, the end of the attacks on RAF facilities was near, although we didn't know it. Seriously underestimating the RAF fighter strength, the Luftwaffe commanders turned to bombing cities and towns. Still, RAF bombers were helping to keep our spirits up, by bombing Germany and, more importantly for our morale, the massed and threatening invasion barges. No matter how well the daily battles in our own skies might be going, it was hard to get these barges out of our minds. Just knowing that these barges were moored, within a few hours' journey from our shores, consumed us with constant dread. One aspect, of air raids, might not be fully appreciated. It wasn't just the population of the various towns attacked, 
that experienced the threateningly hostile sounds associated with an air attack. Sirens wailing and the unmistakable drone of the enemy planes, tended to affect all those within hearing range and all, over whom the aircraft passed. That the bombers were heading to, or from, another place, didn't alleviate the concern, many people felt, at the time. It would be easy to dismiss this fact, as unimportant. But, while I wouldn't wish to make more of it than it warrants, for the nervous, frail, bedridden, and, sometimes, just elderly, the fear and dread were very real. Hard as it might be to realize, today, the sound of a German bomber was clearly distinctive, from British planes of the time. A large number of people in Britain, with only average hearing ability, could distinguish between a Heinkel 111, or a Dornier 17, the flying pencil, and any British plane. For those of us listening at the time, I suppose it was not unlike the difference between a Ford car and a Volkswagen Beetle. Fighter planes were a little more difficult to distinguish, but, both, the very common Messerschmitt 109 and the later 110, did have a different sound, to the British Spitfires and Hurricanes. Be that as it might be, the drone of enemy bombers, overhead, was a very disturbing and eerie sound, to many of us. Although RAF Bomber Command continued to be busy, their efforts tended to be overshadowed by the Luftwaffe's threatening and continued presence over, mainly, the southeast of, England. We barely had time to fully appreciate, and get excited about, RAF bombing successes, before we were listening to the sirens, wailing, their warnings dash again. In the southeast of the country, the frequent alerts occurred, both, night and day. These alerts did not, always, result in any particular enemy action close by. However, the daytime alerts caused disruptions in many workplaces, while the nighttime ones caused disruption to, nearly, everyone's sleep. No one was to know, at least no one in Britain, that Friday September 6th, was the eve of a massive, and protracted, assault on the British capital. It was the last weekend of my summer holiday and I had recovered my composure. The same composure, that had been so badly affected, only a week previously. We learned, later, that Hitler had fixed the date for the invasion as September 15th. The attack that was about to be unleashed, was the final twist of the screw. At least, this is how the German high command viewed it. Now London, and later other cities, would be bombed out of existence. Slowly, and seriously deficient in good judgment, the Luftwaffe attacks, on the RAF airfields, got fewer. London, instead, became the prime target. On Saturday September 7th, all hell broke loose. The sirens sounded in the morning, around 10 a.m., if my memory serves me properly. I was playing in the garden and, in light of my vast experience, I believed very little would happen. How wrong I was, not for the first, or the last, time. The first clue that the day would be different, was the clearly audible approach of a large formation of enemy aircraft. The sound was unmistakable. A very large formation, by the sound of it. Only the distant sound of, what I took to be, guns had been heard before the sound of the enemy aircraft. A virtual absence of anti-aircraft gunfire, at that stage, was fairly normal. Probably, not many people knew the reason, for this. Certainly, Gran and Mother didn't, and neither did I. We attributed the lack of gunfire, to the likelihood that RAF fighters were in close proximity to the German planes, even though, we didn't hear our planes. In spite of the fact the sky was cloudy, I began to look for the planes. This was, an instinctive, stupid and foolhardy reaction. Certainly, not one based on one iota of common sense. But, before I could spot any aircraft, I heard the unmistakable sound of bombs falling and exploding. That was enough for me, more than enough. I fled indoors, the Anderson shelter still being flooded. The gunfire I thought I had heard, was, I then realized, earlier bomb blasts. 
those bombs being too far off, to hear the wine they made while descending. There is no point in making much out of my feelings, from then on, during the rest of the day and night. It was a long day, and night. A very long day, and night. I was scared, but tried hard to put on my brave face. Mum was out of the house, I recall, when the warning sounded and things began to happen. This was worrisome. Gran, of course, behaved with commendable sang-froid. Whether she actually felt so in command of the situation as she appeared, is a moot point. She had been in London, in World War I when the Zeppelins bombed the city. She, very likely, felt experienced. In any case, she succeeded convincing me, that she was feeling fully capable, which was reassuring. I doubt that my own theatrical performance, of pretending to be unafraid, pulled Gran. My mother had been shopping, locally, and was able to get home quite quickly. I remember her return cheered me, and Gran, considerably. In times of danger, I learned that being together is important. As on previous occasions, we started off by sheltering in the hallway. For some reason that I have never got to the bottom of, we eschewed the relative safety of the cellar, of number 5 Dewhurst Road. It is true, the cellar was very dirty, and hospitable and damp. In addition its layout, due to a workbench, a cupboard and assorted junk, was very cramped. Certainly, it wasn't conducive to groups of people. Nevertheless, in later years, I often wondered why we didn't congregate down there. The improved safety would have more than balanced, the inconvenience and profound discomfort. No one, it seemed, was of sufficiently strong opinion to suggest it, or persuade the others of the advantages. So, while the Anderson was out of commission, we always sheltered in the ground floor hallway by the stairwell. It was a frightful day, literally. Mornings and all clears punctuated the hours. I think there were three or four separate raids, that day and night. Hardly had the all clear sounded, then another warning wail from the neighborhood sirens. The aircraft seemed to come in waves and we heard no other aircraft, besides the German ones. I can still hear, the distinctive drone of their engines as they passed overhead. Do, almost, to necessity, something akin to normal living took place after a while. Mind you, we didn't go far from the hallway, while an alert was in progress, and we didn't leave the house. Easily prepared meals were produced and eaten, while tea was brewed, and drunk. I do recall we had an emergency supply of water, in a huge drum, although the main supply was operative throughout, on this occasion. Some toast and baked beans were eaten by the three of us, at some stage, I recall. This would have been a main meal dash either, lunch or supper, but which meal it was, I forget. As the day progressed, so did the air activity. Enemy aircraft were frequently heard above us, but not continuously. Usually, when we heard them, there appeared to be a large number. It sounded as though they came in large formations, rather than in small groups or singly. On a few occasions, just when we thought things had quieted down and the raid was over, another flurry of activity would occur. The air raids continued all that day and, then, most of the night. Each time the all-clear sounded. I recall how much we hoped it was finally over. Many times, we were to be disappointed. As I said, we thought the absence of gunfire was because of the possibility of RAF fighters being hit. We didn't hear any of our planes, but they could have been fighting the Germans above the outskirts of London, which would have made sense. Trying to rationalize the situation, we decided that it would be dangerous to fire anti-aircraft guns, when Spitfires and Hurricanes were flying up there. The absence of friendly gunfire, however, was most disquieting. We didn't know then the AA guns, the country possessed, were located, mainly, to defend the RAF airfields. London was not as important, strategically, as were the airfields and radar stations. What few AA guns were available, were positioned where it was felt they were most needed. 
Later, as raids on the capital increased and the raids on the airfields lessened, AA guns were brought in and positioned to protect the city. At first, there were only a few. Public unrest ensured, that more were found. During later raids, the sound of our guns was, most assuredly, highly therapeutic. It was good for our morale and prevented us feeling like sitting ducks. The final all-clear sounded, not long before dawn, on Sunday morning, September 8th. The raid was over. It was a most unpleasant experience, although we were extremely fortunate. A large number of bombs were heard exploding, some of them quite close to us. Gran's house, and, indeed, the whole of our short street, remained intact, however. There was, sadly, serious damage and some fatalities close by. Many people, in neighboring streets, lost much of their window glass and some had some structural damage to their homes. The whine, of bombs dropping, is an unnerving experience. Many people believe that, if you heard it, the bomb was not destined to land on you. I'm still not certain, if this saying has any validity. I also heard many people say, bombs don't drop in the same place, twice. Although not personally involved, I know, that this isn't true. My mother couldn't wait, to get me back to High Wycombe. I do not recall her speaking much about it, but I was taken by her to Shepherd's Bush Green, in the early afternoon of Sunday September 8th, to catch the coach back to my other home. Previously, I had always caught a later coach. During this 15-minute walk, I remember being chastised because I was looking for, and picking up, shrapnel. There was plenty of it, laying over the place. Shrapnel of all sizes and shapes and, also, many colors. The only consistent thing, about shrapnel, was that it was all horribly jagged and sharp to touch. With one's mother present, one could hardly put the stuff in one's pockets. A hole would have been made, almost instantly. No doubt feeling conciliation was needed, she might have felt some small sorrow for chastising me, mother weakened. She agreed to allow me to find a place, for a couple of special pieces of shrapnel, in the package of clean, iron clothing that she always sent back with me. At that stage of the war, it grieved me, to leave so much of this treasured junk laying in the street. Before long, shrapnel would become so plentiful, collecting it became a jaded pastime. When the coach arrived, pretty much on time, it was a poignant farewell. Not a lot was said, about anything. I recall having very mixed feelings, as I boarded the vehicle that would take me away from all the noise, confusion, and the danger. It was clear and obvious, it would be some time before I was brought back to London. I wondered, how long it might be. During the walk to Shepherd's Bush Green, as well as during the coach ride, I saw some of the results of the raids during the previous 28 hours. Emergency service personnel were seen, performing various tasks relating to the air raid and bomb damage was evident, in many places. Much of the evidence of the raid was seen, in roads other than the actual roads I traveled. However one big detour, in Acton, was made necessary by serious damage to property on the main road. It is strange, the trivial, insignificant, even ridiculous facts, one remembers. Maybe I was tired? Perhaps, I can claim this tiredness, as an excuse for recalling the following inconsequential thought. I remember being made to realize that, when their running wires were damaged or brought down, trolley buses were unable to make detours like the ordinary buses. This was brought home to me, when I saw buses, besides the one I was on, using the detour. Trolley buses, which should have traversed the route, were forced to turn around at each side of the detour. Turning the trolley buses, I noted, was particularly awkward under these circumstances. Of all my emotions, I remember having a very ambivalent feeling about leaving London. Although I was genuinely frightened, I tried to justify my exodus by putting the blame for it, upon my mother's shoulders. From the safety of the coach taking me away, I felt I was up to remaining. In my heart, 
however, I knew where I would prefer to be. Adding to my mental confusion, I was ashamed, of being frightened. I was ashamed, of being pleased to be leaving London. But, despite my innermost feelings, it was with genuine and profound regret that, behind me, I had left my gran and my mother. I didn't know it, then, but the next time I left, I would be even more ashamed, and even more pleased. It has to be said that, as soon as the comparative safety of High Wycombe was reached, I felt my bravery and willingness to endure all return, very quickly. I must have been a very mixed up kid, but, then, it was a very confusing time. Schoolboys, being schoolboys, resulted in us all comparing more stories the next day, the first of a new term. Quite a few of my chums had been home, like me, for the weekend. Nobody admitted, to being scared. Certainly, I wasn't going to be the first one, to admit my true feelings. Although, I have no clear memories of many particular incidents involving school at that time in Sands, it is fair to say that school must have continued pretty much as before. Away from school, I recall it was about this time that Mrs. Mendy had her baby, a daughter, Jillian. I now thought of myself, as having a sister. The feeling was good. Having the baby in the house, was a great novelty to me. It was intriguing to learn, all the things that were involved with an infant. I learned very quickly, that babies brought, with them, a lot of work. My chores increased, but these things were accepted, in those days, with much equanimity. Long after the war, I had the pleasure of meeting Jillian as a young woman. She and Stan, her father, were still alive and well. Gladys, sadly, had died tragically and far, far too young. The full awareness that London was being bombed, on a daily basis, didn't aid our concentration in school. That, I do recall. Our own experiences, meant many of us fully understood the conditions, along with the dangers, then prevailing in the capital. Still, however, blind optimism reigned. Nothing was going to happen to those we loved. To think otherwise would have made us basket cases. The heavy German air raid on London, starting on Saturday, September 7, 1940, was the start of, what is known as, the Blitz. Although the Battle of Britain and the Blitz overlapped a little, arbitrary dates can be assigned the two periods. What is known as the Battle of Britain, started in the middle of June 1940, although the heavy and concentrated attacks didn't start until August 13, 1940, and ended on September 15, 1940. The Blitz commenced September 7, 1940 and continued until mid-May 1941. Amongst other things, both important and inconsequential, the Blitz stopped my regular weekend trips home. These trips ceased, for a while, except for special occasions. The Battle of Britain is, generally, taken to mean the period during which the Luftwaffe attempted to defeat the RAF fighters and, by that, gain mastery of the skies above Britain. This was the primary aim and it was considered a prerequisite, to Hitler's planned invasion of Britain. This, the Luftwaffe attempted to do, at first, by destroying the RAF airfields and communication system. Had they not allowed themselves to get sidetracked, this means of achieving their objective was, without doubt, the most likely to succeed. However, they changed their horses in midstream. Although not abandoning, entirely, their attacks on airfields, the Luftwaffe decided, that bombing British towns and cities would enable the Germany to achieve its objective. To prevent this bombing of civilian targets, the Germans expected that the RAF would use all their fighters, including the reserves. Seriously underestimating the size of their task, the Luftwaffe was confident, in their ability to destroy the RAF fighters in the sky. As a corollary of the new plan, the Germans hoped public morale would, also, be lowered. Due to heavy losses, inflicted upon them by the fighters they thought they could defeat, the Luftwaffe was forced to abandon daylight bombing, of any sort. Clearly, control of the skies was no longer a possibility, for the Germans. 
This, then, terminated the phase, known as the Battle of Britain. Most people seem to agree that this battle ended on September 15, 1940, when Hitler cancelled his planned invasion and the invasion flotillas were dispersed. For the victory we must be thankful, mainly, to the fighter pilots of the RAF. Then, also, to the Air Chief Marshal Doubting, who planned the defense and oversaw the organization and the control of the fighters. During the Battle of Britain the Germans had little idea of the RAF administrative methods. Neither did they understand the manner in which the RAF controlled, and directed, their, numerically inferior, fighter aircraft. More importantly, the Germans failed to appreciate the huge technological advance Britain had made with radar. Added to all this, the Germans failed to grasp that radar, and control of the fighters, were inseparably linked. This point, being the cornerstone, of the RAF's defensive policy. Based upon their own experience and technology, the Germans failed to realize how vital radar was to British control of the defending fighters. Not only did radar provide the RAF controllers with the precise location of German planes, it also enabled good estimates to be made, as to the strength of the attack. This greatly aided RAF commanders, to decide the number of fighters they would send to intercept the enemy aircraft. However, another aspect was crucial to the defeat of the German Luftwaffe, eventually. Radar, due to its ability to detect and locate distant enemy aircraft, also avoided the necessity for the RAF to fly patrolling aircraft. Such a necessity would soon have crippled fighter command's ability to be effective. Patrols would be hit or miss affairs. Aircraft would have to be refueled, and pilots rested. The RAF didn't have the manpower, or the planes, to sustain such lengthy patrols and fight battles. The extra flying time for both pilots and planes, would have, undoubtedly, resulted in the defeat of the RAF. As it was, planes were dispatched upon a definite knowledge of enemy aircraft. No wastage of time, effort or fuel was involved. Efficiency was, virtually, 100%, all due to radar. Additionally, until a raid on the northeast alerted them, the Germans failed to grasp the overall strategy. They fondly imagined that the entire strength, of fighter command, to be based in the southeast. Even at the very end, in September 1940, the Germans thought that all the aircraft in reserve would be brought into action, to defend London from attack. This, they reasoned, would make them easy prey. The Nazi High Command never understood the British policy of attempting to have aircraft to cover all sectors of the British Isles, at all times. A policy that was never deviated from, in spite of strong temptation, sometimes, to do so. That the battle was won, albeit barely, in spite of Germany's early superiority in manpower and machines, points to the superior tactics, employed by RAF Fighter Command, being greatly responsible for the eventual victory. Of course the primary part, the RAF fighter pilots played, is legendary. The blitz resulted from the last throw of the Luftwaffe's dice. It started as the final effort, to annihilate the RAF in the air. Their plan was to attack London and, by that, bring all the RAF's depleted reserves into action. The attack on London, by day and by night by massed formations of bombers and fighters, was thought by the Germans to be certain to bring the entire fighter force, of the RAF, to battle. After a few weeks hectic fighting, the Luftwaffe losses were so crippling, they virtually deserted the daylight sky over Britain. RAF fighters, remained a force to be reckoned with. For a short period just before September 15, 1940, the Battle of Britain and the Blitz overlapped. The first, as stated earlier, ended at this point, while the Blitz continued with increasing ferocity. However, it was only at night. By these means they avoided their huge loss of aircraft due to fighters, but could concentrate on heavy and indiscriminate bombing without great loss. Anti-aircraft guns, were not very sophisticated at the time. 
While London was the primary target and no other place came near to the death and destruction inflicted upon the capital, other town and city suffered greatly. Some of these places were attacked, many times. Some were attacked only once or twice. Two things were, however, common. Great destruction and many deaths. The general and indiscriminate bombing, of all these towns and cities, constitutes the Blitz. An important advantage, of not having a daylight opponent, was that fighter command was able to rebuild and strengthen. By so doing, fighter command could prepare for their, eventual, offensive action. In this, they would play a large role. The fact, the Luftwaffe was forced to abandon day bombing, convinced Hitler the RAF was still a force to be reckoned with. With his invasion fleet severely mauled, by bombing, and the approaching winter making an invasion very hazardous, Hitler cancelled Operation Sea Lion his proposed invasion of Britain. It never, again, became a possibility, not even a vague one. From this moment on, Russia occupied most of Hitler's time for a long while. Large-scale nighttime bombing, of towns and cities in the British Isles, occupied most of Goering's, and the Luftwaffe's, time. It wasn't long after it happened, that RAF recognizance was able to report that the dreaded invasion barges, and other associated craft, were being dispersed. We couldn't believe it, at first. Then photographs, of the before and after sort, were printed of the many channel ports. We had the proof we required, to celebrate. We all began to breathe a little easier. There was still the vague threat of an airborne invasion, but common belief was, that this method would prove too difficult. The vast amounts of men and materiel would be impossible to transport, by air. In addition, even if they landed, in spite of the RAF, supplying them would be impossible, due to the Navy. While, officially, the invasion was a possibility, most of the inhabitants of Britain had decided it wasn't on. Invasion fears dissipated, after the late autumn of 1940. It is, perhaps, ironic that, the Luftwaffe's original plan was correct. They should have continued their damaging attacks on the RAF fighter airfields, which were already close to being made inoperable. Having started to attack the radar stations, they should have continued until they were all demolished. These radar stations were clearly identifiable, while most were placed in exposed positions. They made an ideal, if difficult to hit, target. History could, so easily, have been totally different.